Hello everyone and welcome to QuezCast, a medical educational podcast brought to you in association with QuezMed. My name is Lara and I am currently a Foundation Year 2 doctor up in Leeds and I graduated from UCL Medical School in 2022. I'd like to introduce you to my co-host Priyash. Priyash, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi everyone, my name is Priyash. I'm currently QuezMed's Digital Teaching Fellow for this year. I also graduated from UCL, but in 2021, so I completed my academic foundation training in London last year. And as I said, now I'm taking an F3. Brilliant. Thanks, Priyash. So the aim of this podcast is actually really simple. We just wanted to discuss and talk through complex cases that we'd come across in our foundation years in a way to kind of bridge the gap between what you learn as an undergraduate and what you'll actually be doing day to day as a junior doctor we hope to kind of bridge that gap between textbook learning and what you're actually do on the job. We also hope to kind of reflect a little bit on the role of a junior doctor and kind of how that's evolving as we kind of go on with our careers as well. So for each podcast, one of us will present a complex case. We'll test the other one a little bit and we hope that you'll be able to follow on either listening or watching from home. So Priyash, what do you think? Should we get started with the first one? Yeah, sounds good. Let's crack on with it. Okay. Imagine, Priyash, you're a foundation year one doctor. You're in your first set of night shifts and you're on general surgery placement. And I basically worked hand in hand with the other F1. We split the jobs. We did a few things together when we could. And it really kind of broke up the burden of the first few night shifts. So I was down on the other side of the hospital with her and I got a fast bleed which for those of you who don't know at home, it's when we get 999 and then followed by our um, personalised bleep number. So you know that immediately you need to go and call that ward back. So I went and Mm -hmm. I did that. And one of the nurses from a ward on the other side of the hospital told me and said, we have an acutely unwell patient. I want an urgent review. She is a 65-year-old lady. She is three weeks post a Whipple's procedure. And previous to her deterioration, she was completely well and they were looking to get her home. Mm -hmm. She had had acute onset abdominal pain and she was bleeding bright red blood out of the Robinson's drain, which she had in situ, which is a type of surgical drain. They told me that her systolic blood pressure was 70 initially, but they'd put a fluid bolus through and it had come up to 100. So Priyash, that's all the information that I have at that point on the other side of the hospital. What are you thinking? Okay, so from the sort of very limited, obviously, information we have so far, the main the main issue to me sounds like it's with, with C, so circulation. Um, sounds so far like airway and breathing are completely fine, but there is some hemodynamics instability um, demonstrated by the low systolic blood pressure. But it does sound like it's fluid responsive, so I guess that's, that's one good thing. Um, because mm. it's coming from a surgical ward, obviously, and they're post-op, maybe maybe you're thinking about if there's any any bleeding or post-operative complications, even though the procedure was a while ago. Um, and again, just for the benefit of our listeners, do you mind explaining what a Robinson's drain is, or is it just simply a, a drain from the surgical wounds? Yes, it's simply a the eponymous name for a mm. surgical drain that they put in during surgery. So it kind of drains like hemoserous right. fluid that could accumulate post-surgery. She was actually due to have it out in the coming mm. days. Okay. And then just um, more bits of information, actually, I'd want to know at this point being, um, yeah. so we know they've had a Whipple's procedure. Is there any visible bleeding from anywhere else or is it only from the drain? Um, so Sure, Yeah, yeah. So all good questions that you've asked so far. So I would say it was a very quick handover and I didn't have a lot of time on the phone Mm. because the nurse was obviously really worried. Mm. 
but so she didn't give me a full review like an A to E right. um, handover, but she did give me a little bit of an S bar. Okay. So at this point, I don't know if she's bleeding from anywhere else. Is there anything else you'd like to know? Um, it sounds like um, in terms of the bleeding, how much if they know a volume of bleeding roughly, um, if they've got good venous access, and if so, if they've taken any bloods recently, and also if they're taking any anticoagulation. Yeah, again, really, really, really good questions. The venous access is something that I asked on the mm. phone as well. As a new F1, been a critically unwell patient, you kind of want to know if they have <laughs> venous access before you go and then walk mm. up to the ward. So she had a pick line in situ okay. and they, she had the 500 mil fluid bolus running. Mm. So they said that she had really good access. Mm. I was also, like you said, kind of relieved and reassured that that blood pressure had come up a, a little yeah. bit. In terms of a little bit more background, like you said, anticoagulation, she was on um, prophylactic uh, anoxaparin, as you would expect mm -hmm. in any patient who was post-surgical, especially after such a big mm. operation. And they gave me a little bit more background as well. Okay. They didn't give me the exact volume of blood that she'd lost at this point, mm. but it was clear that it was a, a worrying amount and that it was still bleeding, yeah. which I think is an important mm. um, thing to get across as well. Mm. So she was a 65-year-old lady. Mm -hmm. She was for full escalation. Okay. And I'm sure you would have asked this, but as you, I think you get more into F1 and F2, the escalation status of a patient is really critical. Yeah. So knowing she was full, for full escalation from the off is really important. She was admitted three weeks prior for a Whipple's procedure for early pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. She was previously stable. Actually, before her diagnosis, she was fit and well. Right. And they at this point had estimated, they told me about a cup, but they couldn't give me exact volume sure. of blood that she'd lost. So what do you think now, Priya? You're down on the other side of the hospital. You're about, I'm going to give you five to seven minutes fast walking mm. away. Because you know what, when you're a F1, I mean, any, any time, but especially when you're an F1, you do do the yeah. fast walk through the hospital <laughs> corridors. Um, yeah, so I mean, also I'd be thinking about also just the the other tasks that I've been given. It's it's really good that um, you had another F1 with you on call. I, where I did my training, it was same where you had two F1s on call during general surgery. So hopefully I would want to hand over anything unfinished to them and, and ask that they would sort of take care of the bleep for now or the remaining tasks while I go to see the unwell patient. Um, and I guess, as as I've already said, things we'd be thinking about are post-operative complications. So if there's been potential bleed, for example, um, and because they're actively losing blood as well, you might be thinking about things like if they're going to need uh, more than just replacing with fluids, so replacing with blood products. Um, it's really good to know, actually, the escalation status as well, because, again, not just differentials, but you want to be thinking about the ceiling of care as well um, when you're on your way. But essentially, you know, you want to get there pretty quickly um, so that you can do a more thorough and in-person assessment. Yeah, exactly. And I think you're thinking all the right things as you're making your way across. At that time as well, mm. because I was so early into F1, yeah. which you probably wouldn't do now, and I don't think I would have done now, but I did bleep the SHO yeah, in the registrar yeah. because the nursing team seemed so worried mm. and I really obviously trusted their opinion. I could tell that this was a critically unwell patient most likely and like you said it sounds surgical mm. it sounds like a post-operative yeah. complication just from the off and you know when you hear that a patient is bleeding like that you're going to need extra help yeah. so I did that as I was mm. making my fast walk and um, slow run up to the patient on the other side of the hospital mm. so you've made it up to the ward you're now there in person and you go in to review the patient mm -hmm. 
this might seem like pretty barn door, but what sort of structure are you using? How, what are you thinking as you walk into the room? So again, just like any any sort of scenario, and I'm sure for the medical students listening, this has been hammered into you for a long time, but you want to use your <laughs> ATU approach. Yeah. It, re- it really is the simplest and also most effective way to go through um, any sort of assessment. Um, so again, and also one thing I like to start with as well is just the end of bedogram. How are they looking? Are they conversing? That's, that's normally a good start. Um, and then work your way through the algorithm. So, and it's a good way to check the airways, obviously, as well. So, were they were they talking? Were they conversing? Yeah, exactly. So, what we can do is we can run through sure. your A to E assessment now. Um, but you're absolutely right as well. The end of the bedogram. I don't think it's something that's really taught mm. at medical school. I remember some consultants telling me, "You walk into the room. Are they sick? Mm. Or are they yeah. not sick?" And that is one of the most important assessments that you make, especially as a really junior doctor, mm. because you know that if they are sick, you are very quickly going to need a lot of help. Yeah. So I walked into the room and there were about four nurses present mm-hmm. with me. They told me that they'd already bleeped critical care outreach team and they were on their way. Okay. And I looked at the patient. Um, she was conversing. She okay. was sat up in bed and there was a vomit bowl, which must be about what, 300, 250 yeah. mils of fresh red blood, which was set aside on the table. And I could st- still see that there was blood in the Robinson's right. drain bag. At this point, like I said, I bleeped the registrar on the SHO. Mm. But like you said, the end of the bedogram, this patient was really, really sick. Yeah. And I walked in, knew that I could do a few things there and then yeah. to help. But actually, this was something that really needed urgent senior mm. input. So I said, okay, walked in, saw, turned around, and I just went to the, one of the nurses. And I was like, can you, can you re-bleep the surgical <laughs> registrar sure. on the SHO as I go and mm. assess the patient? So go up to her. Like you said, first, you're assessing airway. So what sort of things are you interested in? So obviously, if she's talking, that's a good sign of patency. Um, You've mentioned there's a vomit bowl. So if there's any evidence that she might be vomiting, any vomitus around her mouth, or if there's any additional sounds that you might hear that might suggest any sort of partial obstruction or recent vomiting, um, those are things that I'd be looking out for. Yeah, absolutely. And she was sat up. Mm -hmm. She was speaking in full sentences. She was complaining of generalized 10 out of 10 abdominal pain that came on really suddenly. And at this point, they hadn't finished the full new score because they were trying to get her blood pressure up and they'd run it through. But then they told me her new score. And she was using a four at this point. So she was tacky at about 101, Mm -hmm. 110. She was a bit hypotensive, mm-hmm. but it was better than it was mm-hmm. before the fluid bolus. Yeah. So she was sitting at, I think, 100 over 70. Yeah. Her respirator was up. It was about 22. Mm-hmm. And her oxygen saturations were okay, but they were drifting down slightly. So she, her, exactly, her airway is patent. Mm-hmm. I wasn't concerned that this was an airway problem. Yeah. But again, she looks sick, mm-hmm. even though her news score is, again, quite reassuring. Yeah she looks sick, something is really wrong. So it's useful, but in young, previously healthy patients, we've got to think about its limitations. So then what what are you going to go on to review next? So next, obviously, we'll move on to the breathing. Um, We know already she's tachypneic and and maybe slightly hypoxic as well. Um, And again, Mm. just general principles when managing an acutely unwell patient, probably want to get some oxygen on. So um, in this situation, probably 15 litres non-rebreathe. And then when you listened to the chest, was there were there any additional sounds? Yeah, so you're exactly right. She was tachypneic. Mm. She wasn't obviously in respiratory distress. Mm. She wasn't heaving, but you can tell her respirate was up, not cyanotic. Yeah. 
Her oxygen saturations, like I said, were drifting down. So I think at this point they had been about 96, okay. but they were quickly drifting down. So like you said, we started yeah. 15 litres non-rebreathed. Even and if the just for came comfort up. as well, um, it can help yeah, with the respiration. Exactly. exactly. So obviously we've done through A, yeah. a and B. Like you said, when you heard the, f- the phone call, you weren't expecting it to be an A and B problem. No. And you were right. So what are you thinking next? The next move on to circulation where we most of our concern is and we already know some of the extra details about. Um, mm. So things like we've seen that their blood pressure is coming a bit now. What, what's their cap refill? Um, what are their pulses like? Um, I, I don't think you mentioned any bloods had been taken at that point. So I definitely want to get mm. a panel of bloods, including a full blood count, use and ease, LFT, um, a group and save, and also a clotting as well, because we're concerned about bleeding. There's, we've got blood coming at least out of the drain and maybe another orifice. Um, and um, yeah, so were any bloods taken at that point? So, yeah, absolutely. Again, the right things that you're thinking about here. For my assessment first, mm. this is what really worried me, to be honest. Yeah. She was completely cold peripherally. Right. I couldn't feel radial or brachial pulses. Mm. And she was now becoming increasingly tachycardic. Her peripheral cap refill was, I think, four. And her central one was about four or three as well. So she was shutting down and she was looking really pale. Because she was moving towards being medically optimized for discharge, she hadn't had recent bloods. Um, I didn't know at that point if she'd had a group and save. um, But I'd hope she would have if she'd had a Whipples. But you didn't know whether it would still be something that was um, usable because the group and saves, they sometimes have to redo them. She didn't have any added sounds, but she was, like I said, really tacky. Mm. This then came on to getting more right. venous access. I was really relieved yep. that she had the pick line in situ. And I think that gave me reassurance at that point. But mm. like you said, we need bloods now. We need to kind of get a gauge of mm. how she's doing biochemically. Yeah. But also we need more access. So I tried to put a cannula in. It, obviously, it's your first couple of weeks, but I think in retrospect, this is someone who's also yeah, in down. hypovolemic shock. So I tried, yeah, exactly. They're mm. completely shut down. I tried a couple of times. I couldn't. I tried to get like a VBG or an ABG. I mm. couldn't as well because mm. she didn't have any peripheral pulses. And I think this mm. is when I started to panic a little bit. She had the pick line in situ still, but I was unable to put in any lines mm. and I was unable to take any blood. I then obviously turned to my team and I was like, oh, the mm. registrar and the SHO yeah, on yeah. their way. I was critical care on their way as well. Um, and as I was finishing off my assessment, critical mm. care um, walked in the room and really kind of <laughs> gave this wash of calm and relief. But just quickly, um, just to finish off your A to E assessment. Yeah. And, what and other just to say also some people of? might be wondering why the pick line wasn't used for bloods, for example. Um, and just to note, obviously, there's someone who's been given lots of fluid by this point as well. So if you, if you did try to give blood, it would have been very diluted, which yeah. is why it wouldn't give very accurate um, results. And also, again, maybe if you were more experienced as well, you may have considered maybe going for a femoral stab or something, because even just something like a point of care VBG could give you a um, immediate hemoglobin, which would be really helpful. But I appreciate first two weeks into F1, first few night shifts. Um, no, yeah, no, I wasn't it's, leaning it's, into it's, the uh, femoral stab. It's a difficult point. one, especially, you know, you're sometimes <laughs> seen as the on-call phlebotomist um, on a night. Um, and mm. yeah, just, just carry on with the assessment. And then to so moving on to D, um, the fact that they're conversing is good, um, shows some level of alertness. Um, I assume you probably didn't do a GCS um, test, which I wouldn't blame you for. Um, but BMs, were they okay? Yeah, she's alert. She was alert. 
um, her BM was and, fine. And also, was, was, was any pain relief given at this point as well? I mean, just in terms of maybe helping reassure the patient, um, she's complaining of lots of pain. So was, was that something that was thought at that time? Mm. Yeah, it was definitely a consideration. Quite quickly, yeah. this felt like a surgical complication. Mm. So we didn't want to give her anything by mouth. And she had, um, I think, Oromorph PRN prescribed and she was on, um, sure. I imagine, like QDS codeine or something like that, mm. like something that you would expect for post-operative pain. We knew that we had to give right. her something like subcut oxycodone. But at that point, I was the only doctor at the bedside. So it was spoken of. Mm. And I, I would physically have to go, leave the room, prescribe the subcut oxycodone, yeah. and then two nurses, because it's a controlled drug, would have to give it. So at that point, I felt mm. it was definitely on my radar. And it's something we talked about. But it was also yeah. the most important thing was like finishing my ATE yeah. assessment and wait for senior um, help to and arrive. And then moving on to E. So they're complaining of um, abdominal pain in terms of exposing the patient um did you see anything with the surgical scars was there any sort of erythema or tenderness around the drain sites um and what what did you find when you examined them yeah so first thing mm. like you said i think previously i looked for any right. other sign sites of bleeding okay. she had no pr bleeding she had no hematemesis and this is when the nursing staff told me that actually that bright red vomit bowl of blood mm. had because they'd already oh, wow. emptied the robinson's drain yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So she'd already mm. lost a lot of blood really quickly. I went to examine her abdomen and actually it was quite soft, right. but ex exquisitely tender, 10 out of 10. Um, okay. She wasn't like peritonitic and there wasn't obviously mm. any erythema or any obvious sort of like mm. wound infection yeah. that would make you think, is this like a sepsis? And um, there were no other sort of surgical incisions okay. that looked worrying as well. But what I did notice is that there was still right. blood pouring okay. into and, the And just double check, there was no localization of the pain. She was just generally quite tender all over. It, hmm. it was completely okay. generalized abdominal pain. Uh, so you probably will be relieved to hear this, even <laughs> though that this is a hypothetical case for you, Priyash, hmm. that as you are finishing your DE, critical care outreach team, they arrived on the ward. Yeah, exactly. And they walked in. For anyone who's at home who's an undergraduate, critical care outreach, especially in your first, I would say, first couple mm. of years, but obviously as you get more senior as well, they really are um, a saving grace and they provide so much calm and expertise in critically unwell patients. So again, the critical care nurse walked in, mm. did the end of the bed test. She's, and what do you think probably she did, thinking she made a hemorrhage, put out the call. We need more hands. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I will talk about it a little bit later. But I think I was so yeah. intent of doing my A to E, of doing all of these mm. things that you're told at undergraduate medical school in your first few days or weeks as an F1. I was like, I need to do my assessment. It's sometimes quite hard to take a step back and think I'd escalated mm. critical care were coming, surgical registrar, surgical SHO had been like bleeped. I couldn't leave at the moment. But if I'd taken a little bit of a step back, I could have just thought, mm. whoa, actually, this is a major yeah. hemorrhage, but it's quite hard. It's quite a big really thing as well. I mean, it's the same before. with an arrest call. I feel like when you when you start being a doctor, you don't expect to necessarily be in one of these situations. First off, it's like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll play the major hemorrhage card a bit later down the line or something. You're not expecting to necessarily need to do that in the first two weeks. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I'd never put out mm. like a double two, double two or a cardiac arrest call. So this is when you were... Yeah. It's what you've experienced before gives context to how you respond yeah. to a current situation. So exactly. So the critical care team came in, ended the bedgram, mm. 
major hemorrhage protocol. And that kind of set right. everything in, in motion a little bit. Her being present kind of gave me the opportunity to then I personally called the surgical right. SHO because I couldn't get through to the registrar yeah. because that's not unusual. They're in theatre. And um, so I called him and I said, there's a critically unwell please, patient. Please. You need to come now. Please, exactly. Surgical SHO walked onto the ward again, did then did the bedogram and said, you need to go and get the surgical registrar. But at this point, what was really, really yeah. helpful is there were so many people there. Critical care were right. trying to get mm. bloods off her, put a line in. One of the nurses Great. had called blood bank, checking yeah. whether or not she'd had group and save. And cross match blood was on the way. And so with the major mm. hemorrhage call are the anaesthetists. And yeah. it's essentially a crash call. So at this point, things felt a little bit more settled. And my assessment felt like I'd been on my own for hours and hours and hours, but it really wasn't. Mm. It was probably maximum 10 minutes, yeah. um, if if that. But when you're in it at the time, yeah. time goes so slowly when you're so and unbelievably not, And it's not stressed. uncommon when you're on a surgical on-call that actually the, the SHO is often seeing um, new admissions in A&E or they might be in theatre and, and often the registrar will be in theatre um, seeing the emergencies as well. Um, so it's not uncommon to be that first responder when you're on your surgical on calls. With your differentials, again, completely right. And it just shows that medicine, I think, isn't actually rocket science. Yeah. Your your assessment has shown you that you're bleeding from somewhere and that is probably related to the surgery that she's had. Mm. And in someone who is acutely bleeding like this, I think the two main principles that I would focus on is one, resuscitation which is when yeah. your assessment is actually really useful because you need to know when to escalate and when a person mm. person mm. is actually sick and then hemostasis and we've done that assessment now we've yeah. got resuscitation in process that's when the surgical registrar is needed because mm. that is the person who is going to be able to start the process of hemostasis whatever that would be yeah. so i'll tell you about the story of getting the surgical registrar because the surgical SHO walked in, ended the bedogram, did what I did, came out and said, yeah, I think this is one of those times where we really do mm. need the surgical registrar who was in surgery. So mm. he said, go down to surgery and get and get him. So mm. I did this. I'm not even going to say at this point it was a slow, slow walk or a slow run. It was basically a fast run, Priyash, <laughs> as I was running through the corridors. Yeah. And I kind of like burst in to the theatre where they were doing a laparotomy yeah. and it was two surgical registrars and another SHO. I think I forgot to put a hat on, but in all of the stress, I know that that's really bad, but you just, you can't even think more broadly. Mm. And I kind of just walked, I knocked. I remember I kind of fell in and I was like, um, that's what a scrub nurse looked to you very angry. Yeah, exactly. Like, who is that? Who's that like bedraggled F1 who's just fallen <laughs> into my theatre? And I kind of just went in and I was like, oh, I'm Lara. I'm the F1. We've got an acutely unwell patient on the wing on this side of the hospital. Mm. They've lost about 500 mils now of frank red blood out of their Robinson's drain. And they've had a Whipple's procedure. Please, can you come right now? And I just remember, because there were obviously two registrars there and it was towards the end of the laparotomy. Mm. And he kind of just looked at me. And it was just like steely calm and steely mm. cool. And he just kind of stepped away from the laparotomy. I hope you can still hear me. Mm. And kind of like yeah. de-gowned. And he just turned slowly and then just like walked out. With me. And I remember thinking, I was like, all the running that I do, I was 
obviously a a sweaty mess at this point but he just walked so calmly so collectively and he was Mm. like just tell me what happened and I was like well Mm. this happened and this happened and critical care outreach are there we've put out the major hemorrhage protocol Mm. and he was like okay just just calm down and not he Mm. didn't tell me to calm down but I could Mm. tell that he was just trying to regain control of the situation Mm. and he then walked into the room and at this point the whole of the major hemorrhage protocol team the crash team were there so my role then suddenly took a step back I was there Mm. to assist the surgical registrar and in what would happen next and just then quickly you've given a really important differential is there anything else that you would want to consider you talked a little bit about sepsis but if we're being quite broad about our differentials is there any 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 more specific you'd want to be about what type of bleed that you think that this might be you've obviously Mm. said like a post-surgical complication Mm. um any other thoughts again if we're going very broad i think anyone with sort of generalized abdominal pain bleeding and hemodynamic instability i think you probably need to think about triple a um and and i want and again i wonder actually if when more experienced people came whether they considered doing a fast scan like an ultrasound scan for example Um, but maybe that's one other differential you'd consider yeah absolutely and I think at this point as well it's quite hard to tell clinically but is Mm. this feeling more like an arterial or Mm. a venous bleed do Mm. you think um I think I think it's sounding probably more arterial at this point just because of how um the, the rate at which they're losing blood and how much blood they're losing Exactly. Exactly. And what? Obviously, you're not the surgical registrar, although you are very good. But what investigations or potential um, interventions would you think that the surgical mm. registrar would be thinking about now? I think if we, you know, we're probably fairly confident at this point that this is something surgical. And normally, when it's something surgical, they might need surgery. Um, yeah. So you're thinking about whether they're going to need to go back to theatre. Um, if they're going to need to do another laparotomy, for example, and see what's going on. Um, I think in this point in time, the, it, it doesn't sound like they're stable enough to go to theatre. Um, yeah. From what you've said so far, we still don't have ideal access. We've just got one pick line at the moment. Um, and again, I think they, they're going to need some stabilisation before anything can happen. Um, and definitely before, before taking them back to theatre, opening them up, you definitely probably want to be guided by some form of imaging. Mm. Um, what sort of imaging would you think would be useful here so so again i think the key is obviously to stabilize them for for mm-hmm. any form of imaging at the bedside as i said maybe an ultrasound fast scan um yeah. would be helpful um especially if you're thinking triple a but otherwise um i think imaging can, that can be really helpful in these circumstances can be something like a like a ct angiogram um, which again, I, I would only think of because I, I did a joint vascular and general surgery job, and it was something that obviously we requested quite regularly. Um, but I think stabilizing them up to a point where they can have maybe a CT angiogram to identify any sort of bleeding point. Mm. And then again, I don't, I don't know about the services available in your hospital, but where I did my foundation training, we had interventional radiology as well, so it would be quite a common pathway to get the angio done, see if there's anywhere that could be embolized, and if so you know, the on-call IR team will, will come in and, and facilitate that. Mm, exactly. Exactly. I think all of the thoughts that you're having are really important. But again, you keep coming back to this patient really doesn't sound stable enough. Yeah. So what I'll do now is I'll just give you a brief 
overview of what happened because the role mm -hmm. of the junior doctor here I think is like I said kind of taking a step back mm. but the surgical registrar and I came back to where the patient was like yeah. I said before the crash team were there right. they um, couldn't put any peripheral cannula in and so at this point they decided to transfer her to ITU to put in a central line and right. so obviously this is a huge kind of organizational procedure it doesn't sound mm. it but moving a critically unwell patient from one yeah. ward to icu in the middle of the night at 4 a.m is really difficult but obviously yeah. is kind of eased by having the crash team there and so she was moved over to itu and really unfortunately she was still losing so much blood from the robinson's mm. drain mm. that she had two pea arrests which for everyone listening right. at home is like pulseless electrical activity and is quite common in those who have hypovolemic shock so mm. it's when the electrical activity of the heart is the same you still have the pqrs t complex but the heart itself is just not not pumping so you don't use shocks in that example yeah. and my role in the arrest was just still to literally squeeze bags of o negative blood mm. in and really like quite luckily um but also because of the expertise of the team there on the crash team they got mm. rosk twice and wow. you're right that this lady is might not be stable enough for imaging mm. and she might not be stable enough for theatre. But mm. actually, that's what you have to do. The main mm. problem is the fact that she's bleeding and we can't yeah. resuscitate her appropriately to keep her stable yeah. enough to get her down. So it's almost like a catch-22. Yeah, you can't just keep on giving blood. She's losing blood. You're... She's losing blood quicker than we can replace it, quite mm. frankly. So the mm. decision was made overnight to get in. Mm the radiology consultants we did have interventional radiology right. so the ir consultants were called in mm. overnight she went down to ct angio unfortunately mm. she had a couple more arrests um, but they were able to identify that she had a major bleed mm. either from like the gastroduodenal artery or from the hepatic artery right. they got her to ir and they found that she had unfortunately ruptured her hepatic artery and they were able to embolize it and she was taken to ICU. Mm. And that's when I was able, went home the next morning mm. and she stayed on ITU. Her family were call in, called in, but really, unfortunately, she passed away because the ischemic insult of mm. two, of multiple cardiac arrests and yeah. you had to embolize her liver and just the blood loss unfortunately wasn't, um, it wasn't a survivable yeah um, event mm. so it's not it's not a particularly happy outcome to a case and I kind of was no. a bit hesitant to even bring this up as our first one that we have mm. on the podcast mm. but I feel like it's important to talk about the role of the F1 thinking about having one of your first critically unwell patients mm. and kind of also reflecting on it it's not something normal that everyday people see or have to go through no. And mm. the first time you do it, it can feel really overwhelming. Yeah. It does get easier, but I thought that that was why this might be a good case. Mm. So what do you think, Priyash, of the case? What? How did you find it? Have you had any similar experiences in your F1 and F2 years? I've, I've definitely had experience with seeing similar sort of um, catastrophic bleeds, like things like upper GI mm. bleeds um, and aneurysms, obviously, because I, like I said, I'd worked in vascular. Um, what was the me do you know what the mechanism of of this bleed was because it I, my my anatomical knowledge is not perfect and certainly not for a Whipple's disease either but did did they have were they able to figure out what actually precipitated the bleed yeah because the surgery so, was three weeks ago um 
Exactly. So I was interested in this as well. Mm. And overall, I found this case really difficult. Obviously, it's not Mm. even close to how the patient and their family would feel. But for Mm. me personally, it was quite a difficult case. Mm. And so a few weeks later, actually, the general surgery consultant called me uh, and said, I heard that you were the foundation year one doctor Mm. who went and assessed this patient. Mm. You were there on your own for a few minutes. I wanted to say like, thank you for your role in it. And this is also for anyone at home. This is kind of unheard of that this sort of feedback and discussion, um, I'd never, I've not really encountered it again. And he spoke through what had happened. And he said he'd Mm. been reviewing the case because it was an unexpected death. Right. And he said that there is a rare complication from a Whipple's, um, from a Whipple's procedure that can Mm. lead to a delayed catastrophic hemorrhage and it's called a hepatic pseudoaneurysm. So an aneurysm, as probably you'll know and everyone at home knows, is kind of a ballooning of an artery wall, and it involves all three layers of the vessel. Mm. But a pseudoaneurysm is actually when there's leaking of blood contents through the blood vessel walls, and so it kind of has a localised hematoma outside the vessel, and it kind of is walled off by the clotting Mm. cascade. So as you can imagine, it's really friable. The only thing that was biochemical she was, like I said, she was new zero, she was stable, but her CRP was climbing up a little bit. And that's what the consultant said was perhaps the only thing that suggested that this Mm. pseudoaneurysm was kind of accumulating. And then Mm. unfortunately, as as aneurysms do, it just ruptured. Yeah. It's quite a rare complication. I read somewhere that it occurs in about one to 8% of Whipple's um, procedures but it accounts for up to 38 percent of the mortality from a Whipple's right. procedure because of the delayed yeah, um, yeah. hemorrhage and and even the end what you mentioned about the CRP is, is is still fairly fairly innocuous because actually obviously undergoing such a major procedure is going to cause a rise in, in inflammatory products so and for those of you who are on surgical jobs at the moment you'll know that your your more senior colleagues will tend to except what you might find quite surprising um, levels of CRP post-op because um, you expect some level of information. So even then, it's really difficult to tell. Um, Absolutely. And I think what was quite not reassuring to hear, but what he spoke to me about is that these sorts of things are unsurvivable. So you think Mm. about your role in assessing that patient and you think about what you could have done better and what Mm. you should have done and you kind of carry a lot of that on and I think all my friends at home they'll know that I've talked about this case quite a lot because it really did stay with me and Mm. I was really hard on myself about not putting out the major hemorrhage protocol as I walked through the room um, into the room and that's with the benefit of hindsight and now with the benefit of a little bit more experience Mm. but actually what I did do was I did the A to E assessment I think UCL Medical School would be proud of me for that. <laughs> and I stayed calm and I did escalate appropriately and with and I acted within the limits of my own knowledge. Yeah. So I think those were kind of the learning points, um, some of them that I took through as well. Is there yeah. anything that obviously you did it hypothetically? Is there anything mm. else that you would have done differently? Uh, actually, one question I was going to ask, and mm. I only asked this sometimes it can, it may fall to the F1, but did you contact the family at any point? Um, and if so... How was that? Um, just again, that that's something that I've I've had to do um, after seeing acutely unwell patients, and sometimes that can be quite a difficult thing to to talk about as well when when you're in such sort of a high pressure situation. 
Yeah, and I think as well as a foundation year doctor, that's something that kind of slips your mind a little bit. Mm, We're mm. so focused on Mm. this patient. We sometimes don't see outside with the um, hemorrhage protocol or with families or what really is important. Mm. And so the surgical registrar was like, can you call them and just tell them to come in? But it was the middle of the night. Their phones were off, so I had to leave a message um, and say, um, I'm really sorry your family member has become critically Mm. unwell overnight. We would like you to come in um, as soon as possible. It's not enough mm. just to say, kind of, call us back, but you obviously yeah. have confidentiality as well. But they did, they did come in, and they were with her in intensive right. care. Yes. Otherwise, yeah, like like you said, I think the main learning points are when when you are, especially when you're uncertain of what the diagnosis is. You know, there'll be times where you hear a handover and you can tell, or at least you have that confidence that oh, this is probably going to be the sepsis. This might be obstruction mm. or something, but ultimately as as long as you go through that framework that ATE framework you will pick up um you know this is a slightly morbid way to think about it but the, the ATE framework does also tell you what's going to kill the patient first what's going to harm the patient yeah. first and and when you're unsure of what's going on and you don't have something to go off of sometimes those are sort of the bare bones that you just have to um go through and they're the bare bones that I promise you in these scenarios for anyone listening at home that's what you remember you actually mm. do remember it and it kind of rolls off the tongue a little bit the last Mm. thing that I wanted to talk about which is a little bit more academic was Mm. the role of getting a hemoglobin in a major hemorrhage so Mm. I said I really wanted to get an HB I wanted Mm. to get an arterial blood gas or Mm. anything off that and you said it as well but I guess in the kind of looking back on this given how much blood she'd lost and that she was still bleeding how Mm. useful would a basically a point of care hemoglobin have been then that's true and i think also the the value of it in in activating a major hemorrhage protocol is actually quite limited as well because mm. i think the the criteria will often vary trust trust to trust but generally sort of the basic principles are are they hemodynamically unstable are they losing blood at a very quick um rate and and also just the sheer volume of blood that they've lost and and this patient actually ticked all three of those and none of those required knowing what the hemoglobin was especially exactly especially a hemoglobin that is falsely reassuring in an mm, acute bleed mm. we'd know she'd lost enough blood for this to be a major hemorrhage so i yeah. think as well my focus and yours as well uh, on getting the hp mm. something to think about as well and a major hemorrhage is something you really diagnose clinically rather than biochemically mm-hmm. so yeah. it's another little thing that i learned as as well i think from this case so any final thoughts priyash anything else you want to comment on that's uh, i mean i'm sorry you had to go through that so so early on that that sounds like i said baptism of fire but honestly i'm i'm sure and you know you're telling this on almost probably a year later you you would have learned so much from it and not necessarily that you're able to to even say but when you're uh, reassessing patients in the future I'm, I'm sure it definitely made a huge impact because those to- sorts of experiences really do stick with you um and in some ways are, are part of what you could call maybe a hidden curriculum where you kind of pick things up through experience and then apply them into future experiences yeah I, I think you're absolutely right it is the hidden curriculum and it's also mm. about working through these difficult cases and also kind of letting them go in a way you learn Mm. from them you don't have to always carry them with you in the Mm. same way if that makes sense it took a while for me to I think kind of let let it go and say Mm. actually it was okay that I've now learned 
when to mm. put out the major hemorrhage protocol. Yeah. So, yeah, but there we go. That was the first one. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that case, Lara. No worries. It's your turn next. You can bring one next next time. Yeah, will do, will do. So just thank you to anyone who's listening or watching at home. Obviously, this is our first attempt and we want it to be interactive with you guys and we want to learn from what works for you so i think priyash you've got a email that people can respond to if they want us yeah. they've got any interesting cases or they want to um give us any feedback things like i should stop touching my hair <laughs> <laughs> yeah Just, no uh, we're, we're we're really open to feedback and as i said this is our first episode so you know we're we're very open to sort of changing things you know would you prefer if this was a live stream for example um, so you can maybe send messages or, or interact with us during the case. Um, and we're hoping that this will be on um, various streaming platforms. And in the description of those, we'll have the um, Quesmed email in it, um, which I monitor. So if you have any any feedback, any suggestions, please do just get in touch. We're really uh, contactable or comment on the YouTube video. That's fine as well. Um, yeah. But we hope you enjoyed it. We hope you found it really helpful. And um I'm excited for the next one. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to doing this a bit more. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching and listening. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye.